Welcome everyone to this episode of the Naked Guru Experience. These are conversations on psychology, spirituality, and theogens and consciousness. Please do subscribe to our content to support the channel. Today's guest is Jeff Brown. Jeff is author of numerous books, including Spiritual Graffiti, Soul Shaping, A Journey of Self-Creation, and the book we will be discussing today, Grounded Spirituality. Here, Jeff lays down the tracks for an embodied way of being, one that leaves us integrated and purposeful, not awakened, but awakening, not transcending our humanness, but finding meaning and spirituality within it, right in the heart of our imperfect daily lives. At long last, we can lay down our weary heads, burdened by the impossibility of transcending our human experience. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be with you today. And thanks for agreeing on uh, such such short notice. So, um, I just thought for the first question for the for the to start us in, could you just give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into this before grounded spirituality, a little bit of info about you know who is Jeff Brown? Um, I grew up in Canada uh, in a tumultuous uh, family home. Um, one that I endeavor to stay emotionally current with for whatever reason from an early age. I was uh, an emotional release character. I was really determined. I kind of got from an early age that I didn't want to hold in onto what wasn't mine somehow. Um, and then, you know, it started to bundle up and armor more in my teen years and adolescent years. And I had visions of possibility for my life. I saw this very famous Canadian criminal lawyer named Eddie Greenspan on TV. And I used to say, I'm going to work with that guy one day. It was like a, and I was a very pragmatic survivalistic kid, not somebody who was inclined in the direction of notions of synchronicity or serendipity or something, but it felt really real for me. Um, and as time went by, I, it's sort of felt true that, that I was going to do law and then I was going to study psychology and then I was going to write. It just seemed like I had an encoded path. I had indicators of encoded path throughout my life. Um, and then I became a lawyer, worked with Eddie, did a big murder trial, was sort of primed to become a prominent trial lawyer in Toronto and in Canada um, and probably go into politics, which was the next step. And, and then a part of me that I named little Missy, my inner Damon or my guiding angel, or just this voice of truth that seemed to know my encoded path, started to whisper what I would call sweet somethings in my inner ear, reminding me that I was to walk in another direction. And so, so much of my work in my late twenties, early to mid thirties was about just making a decision to walk away from law, which was incredibly hard because my soul loved it so much. And it was so organic and easy and natural for me in the direction of some unknown path. I mean, somewhat known, I had some encoded visions of possibility, but I wasn't really ready to write. And I wasn't even fully ready to study psych yet. I had to sort of learn how to sit in the not knowing and, and figure out what lived below my armored warrior consciousness. Um, yeah. So, you know, I went through all kinds of different stages that I wrote about in Soul Shaping. Um, had a profound love experience that I wrote about an uncommon bond that was kind of like the last piece before I think I was ready to sit down in the writer's seat and started to write in just before 9-11 in, in 2001. And I, mean, I haven't really stopped since. The whole grounded spirituality theme is sort of fundamental to my process. I didn't really start with any interest in this thing called spirituality. I was, I was very psychologically oriented. I was really into psychotherapeutic process. I had an inner witness at a very young age that I was interacting with. 
um, inquiring into who I really was, telling me I wasn't who I appeared to be. I mean, there were so many pieces and parts. I was naming my parts, my warrior boy, my Encyclopedia Brown. I was really into that whole process. Uh, at a time when I didn't know anybody around me, I, I didn't even talk to anybody about this stuff. It was all happening inside of me. Um, and then, you know, I started to work with Alexander Lowe and moved out of talk therapy into somatic psychotherapies and bioenergetics and the late nineties. And, you know, began to ask this question about like, what is this spirituality thing? Cause I was experiencing my greatest um, unity consciousness moments through my psychotherapeutic somatic process, right? It, it wasn't a notion. It wasn't a meditative experience. It was coming through the discharge experience. At the end of the discharge, I felt cleared out, clarified, space opened up inside, and I started to feel unified. So my whole experience of waking up happened through waking down. Um, so then when I started to engage in spirituality, read Eckhart Tolle's work, which I at first liked and eventually very much disliked, I, I began and then made Carmageddon with Bhagavan Das lived in my house and Ram Das and Sean Korn and all these people. I was really trying to make sense of what the fuck are they talking about? Um, and Al Lowen had a view very similar to mine. It was like, yeah, you just like go down into the body, you clear the emotional debris, you clear the lines, you ground yourself and you become vital, bright eyed, bushy tailed, that's spirituality, that's spirited. So I think so much of the work of the last 10 or 12 years has been about trying to make sense of spirituality. I started to create language, started to come through me, new cage movement. I defined patriarchal spirituality. You know, now they're all going after the bypass, but I was doing this years and years ago. and you know, really, really wanted to understand what is wrong with this notion of spirituality that seems so dissociated, so bifurcated, so patriarchal, so self-avoidance masquerading as enlightenment, so automaton-esque Eckhart Tolle, all of that. I, I was wanting to have the experience I had in bioenergetics with Al Lowen, where I would end a session, end an experience, or at the end of a holotropic breathwork, feeling bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, vital in my body, body, ready for life, connecting to a unified field, but also feeling deeply connected to my body and a localized consciousness. I wanted all of it. I wanted the whole alchemy of all of it to happen. And all I kept seeing was this kind of bifurcated, dissociated consciousness. So mm. that kind of, that journey culminated, very long answer to your very short question. That journey culminated really with grounded spirituality and with the model that I'm now writing arising from that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, in, within that story, was there any entheogenic work or has there been any entheogenic work with such things as LSD or ayahuasca or anything like this? No, the closest I've come to anything like that is holotropic breath work. And mm -hmm. I had such a remarkable and expansive, illuminating experience with that, that I never felt the need to go anywhere else. With knowing, uh, with knowing Ram Das and knowing his history with LSD, um, you were never tempted, you know, throughout the years to, to just take a look into that. Uh, not remotely interested in it. No, no, no I, I'm really, I really believe we have all of the tools within us organically and we just have to learn how to excavate and access them. Um, and, you know, Ram Das, I knew fairly well. We had many very depthful interactions. Um, I didn't see Ram Das as some symbol of great awakening. Um, that I had to follow in his footsteps. That was never my experience with him. I, I felt like he was uh, a first stage teacher. He was 
very good at introducing tools and techniques and ways of understanding reality that invited us in the direction of a more expansive consciousness. But I don't think he knew much of anything about how to then take that step one awakening back into the body, work through the psycho-emotional material, and find the alchemical weave of wholeness. Um, for me, presence is a whole being experience, and that was not my experience of Richard at all. Um, and I confronted him. We spent parts of two days with me confronting him about precisely this. And when I called him a spiritual bypasser, and at the end of the two days, he admitted it was true. And so, you know, his whole blind spot around psycho-emotional process and the psychotherapeutic piece, which was a reflection of his own unresolved material and his either inability to work that through or his unwillingness to go there, in my view, prevented him from having an understanding of the spirituality that I experienced in Alexander Lowen's office, which felt to me like a much more integrated experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually a, a later question I have written down here about Ram Dass, but since you have uh, touched on it, I noticed uh, I read the part in, in Grounded Spirituality in regard to him. Could you just uh, uh, expand a little bit more on, on that meeting and his influence on your work and then your kind of final conclusions on uh, You kind of touched upon it there, but... Mm. I mean, I think that um, I went to see him originally when I shot Carmageddon my film with Bhagavan Das, about Bhagavan Das and me. And I went there with a genuine interest in understanding this confusing, seductive version of spirituality that Bhagavan Das was presenting to me. At that time, that was kind of my growing edge. And yet the other part, more grounded part of me that was like, this feels like bullshit. But I didn't understand why it was bullshit yet. So at that stage, when I went to Ram Das, he was very comforting to me. Um, yeah, I get, I get that he had bypassing elements. He had a new name instead of Richard Alperty. You know, all these things were indicators to me that these guys were up to something, you know. He just was up to it in a way that had a lot more dignity and a lot more decency. And he was truly a man of great service. His work, Save a Foundation, was extraordinary for people with visual disabilities and so forth. But, you know, so at that time, being with him talking about these expansive things while he was now after the stroke way more dropped into his heart and his body i experienced him and described him in, in soul shaping my first book as sort of a grounded spiritualist as i continued to unfold in the direction of a different understanding of spirituality i started to see him somewhat differently um I started to see parts of him as aligned with that and other parts of him completely lodged in my definition of patriarchal spirituality. The beauty of him is that I could confront him and he was game. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean that after he made an admission, he then went and integrated that into his life and changed his shtick. That's, that didn't happen as far as I know. But he was game because he, he loved being engaged in, in um, in brave interactive processes. I mean, he was with Tim Leary. Tim Leary was a total confronter and I was a total confronter and I wasn't afraid of him and he didn't make me afraid of him. You know, um, he made it comfortable. Um, so by the time I went through that piece with him, I don't feel that he, I was holding him in great high regard any longer. Um, I felt like I was seeing him as a lovely intelligent man with some serious blind spots who was doing some very beautiful work in the world, but who was by no, re by no means a realized master. I don't think anyone is, so that's not really saying much. Um, and that, now- at, yeah. 
that was one of my questions actually. Uh, do you think anybody is a realized master? And I guess the answer is, is no. I mean, I just see sort of spirals of awakening. I don't, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, if I think of my most clarified, expansive moments, I feel as though in those moments, I feel a, a gratification to being able to be there, but I also have a clear glimpse of all kinds of places I haven't arrived at yet. And because I define Ryan's spirituality as reality and grounded spirituality, for me, you know, nobody is a master of all threads of reality. You, you, you can be, you know, an masterful at a particular thread. You can be an amazing meditation teacher. But so that's why the term spiritual teacher doesn't apply to me. I don't believe in it. I think anyone who calls themselves a spiritual teacher is probably just a marketer and a poser in one form or another. But if they tell me that they're good meditators, if they tell me, if Eckhart says, listen, if he doesn't call the power of now, you know, guide to enlightenment, I don't got a problem with him. If he says, look, I'm a really troubled guy and I found some techniques that helped me to calm down doesn't mean I resolved everything. It doesn't mean I'm fully in my body. But I found some helpful techniques. I got no problem with him. But when you tell me that it's a guide for enlightenment, now we have a problem because then I start to feel like people are being led astray. Hmm. And I think a lot of these people are leading people astray for some marketing or egoic reason um, and not understanding the limitations of their offering. If we understand the limitations of our offering, we can all sit together and learn together. But when you start presenting yourself as the master and take advantage of the Godjectification pattern in people, the desperate need to see, find the great mommy or the great daddy or the great God in human form, then to me that starts to become a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it took me a while to kind of get my head around the nuance and complexity of your, where you come from. Uh, because you're not necessarily denying the transcendent. You're not saying, oh, oh that's nonsense. Uh, you're kind of incorporating it and saying it, it, it does exist. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying it, it, it does exist, but humanness exists also. Well, how are you defining the transcendent? Uh, as a kind, well, as uh, having a transcendent experience, having an experience that is not fully embodied. Would you, would you say that uh, you acknowledge? How, how could you have an experience that's not fully embodied? Possibly experience. I mean, where are you, where are you going? Well, a, a dream, for instance, is not fully embodied. Uh, the imagination is not fully embodied. A uh, feeling of, of oneness, connectedness to, to everything, you know, these kind of experiences. Entheogenic experiences are often this way, too. One, oneness or connected to everything. Okay. So let me read a paragraph from Andrew Harvey's book, Forward. Yeah. And maybe this, maybe this is the answer to your question. Um, and you'll tell, huh? you what? Prepared. Oh yeah, I'm always prepared. Okay, so, um, so I, I'm gonna, he, he says some complimentary things about me. So let's put that off to the side. Okay, but I'm just gonna read the whole paragraph. Yeah. For me, Jeff Brown is a modern day alchemist. And by that, I mean, he has embraced the ancient alchemical path. The ancient alchemical path has three stages. First, Profound experience of transcendence that reveals divine identity. This makes obvious the truth of what's written in the Upanishads, you are that. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. The patriarchal traditions have mistakenly taken this stage for enlightenment. But the alchemists knew that this was only the first stage. The second stage is the stage that Jeff is such a master of, which isn't true. This is where the deep knowledge of the transcendent and the forces aroused by that knowledge are consciously integrated step-by-step step with mind, heart, soul, and crucially, and more importantly, the depths of the body. 
Yes. At this second stage progresses, the third stage, which is called the simple thing, starts to emerge. And for this third stage, there were very few descriptions because very few people have truly matured in the mystery of profound union with all that this stage brings. Jeff Brown knows the glowing fringes of this stage, maybe, and has experienced the truth of the revolutionary birth that happens through the choice to ground transcendence in the depths of reality. So for me that, you know, Andrew was always supporting my work. I didn't understand how he knew what I was doing because I myself didn't fully know. But at the end, when he did this forward, he orated this forward to me, it was in his genius. Um, he, it was clear to me that he understood exactly what I was trying to do. That, you know, having these, I, I understand why men created this notion of transcendence. They don't want to deal with their feelings or because of the survivalist sociology they were in, they couldn't deal with their feelings. So they created a world that splits off our spirituality, our transcendent experience from our humanness. It's the perfect game to never have to work through anything. Mm. You can claim you're masterful. You can claim you're enlightened. You can claim you're realized, awakened in Brahman without ever having to deal with anything. You can sit in a meditation cave. You can go to stillness and silence to avoid your triggers. You can create a completely false reality to avoid all that stuff that's unresolved in you, the confusing nature of the alchemical journey of humanness. Yes. Um, and see the women in the village who are bringing you the milk to your door as somehow substandard because they're caught in the mundanity in the matrix. My experience was that my booby, my grandmother, was actually far closer to the truth of the human experience than my masterfully avoidant grandfather. It played a big role in my learning and education. So for me, the work has always been, I've had pro profound experiences of this thing you call transcendence. I, I can go there very easily without drugs. But then I'm always there saying, now what? Mm. What do I do? How do, what is, how do I work the weave? of taking this into this complicated human form. Because I think if you don't do that, Ryan, you really haven't done nothing. Yeah, but I, I think also what you've just said correlates very well with uh, how I've come to understand what you're doing. Like I said, you recognize and acknowledge the transcendent, but you also place the importance on bringing it back into our humanity. I think that gels very well with Andrew's description there. You're right, so, so, so let me just say a little more about that. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think that for me, what's important, my focus in my work, I mean, people have different points of focus in the work that they're bringing to the world, their offerings. Yeah. For me, my focus is really on the human, on, on clearing the shame, clearing the guilt, clearing all the self-hatred, coming to a place of really excavating and knowing what your sacred purpose is, why you're here, what brilliant gifts, callings, and offerings live inside of you developing the healthy ego, you know, yes. not fixating on the mind, healing the monkey heart, not focusing upward, doing all this work down here so that when you then have an experience of what you're calling transcendence, if you even need to have it, it's all coming through the body, not through rising above the human fray. Yes. Because my experience is when I have that experience from deep inside a well-woven container, it's a completely different experience of transcendence. Both what I glimpse into is more expansive and it's more sustainable than what I experienced when I was exploring it in an effort to get away from my humanness. They're completely different worlds. No, I, I, I agree. And, and I think um, 
I think it brings us nicely to kind of one of the main points of discussion, something that I've been talking about with a lot of people, including Peter Russell and uh, Robert Saltzman, is this idea of spiritual materialism. In our communities, in spiritual communities, or even non-spiritual communities, in kind of the entheogenic communities, there is a hazard that we can fall into godliness and fall into these expansive experiences and just remain there and never come back into humanity and claim from that point that, we are now enlightened and we don't need to deal with the real world. Of the Doesn't problem. that feel wonderful, Ryan, to think you're, what a wonderful feeling of relief that is to be able to float around thinking you're enlightened. I mean, uh, wow. Kind of more worryingly uh, that, that I have witnessed, I've kind of experienced firsthand is, is, is the notion that we all just create our own reality and so suffering is an illusion. But, you know, the gang raped woman in the war zone is not creating her own reality. The impoverished child yeah. that I live in Asia, for 10 years. So I can tell you there's suffering there that is not being uh, fully created. I, I understand it from the point of godliness and non-duality that, that, that it is all kind of love, but. Whoa, 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 whoa. But, but that's, not, that's not non-duality, that's, mm. that's pseudo non-duality. Mm. That's the Advaita movement that I call the Avoida movement. There's nothing <laughs> non-dual or unified about a consciousness that removes everything uncomfortable about humanness from your experience of an expanded consciousness. They're all liars. They're all self-avoidant masters. They're all doing everything they can to not deal with what's unattended to within them. And they're floating into this allegedly ego dissolved, completely egoic state of being that makes them emotionally inaccessible, where they avoid depthful relationships on almost every single level because it brings up their stuff while they move towards silence and stillness because sound and movement bring up all their triggers. The whole thing, the whole structure of what we've been calling spirituality, what we've been sitting in, in my view, is self-avoidance masquerading as enlightenment from start to finish. I really believe that. These people know nothing about non-duality. The women in the village know a lot more about non-duality because when they come to a unified experience, it comes through their hearts. It comes through their feet. It comes through their yonis. It comes through their bodies. And for me, this is real, real non-duality, not that. Mm. And I mean, I, I, could you expand a little bit more of your view of what's happened and what is the antidote to kind of spiritual materialism or spiritual bypassing? Uh, there obviously is some, we, we can agree that there is sometimes some healing uh, potential to these experiences. Uh, there is people that are, have lived, for instance, I was an alcoholic, for instance, and I yeah. was cured of my alcoholism through this experience, and I'm working on now embodying it in, in life. But so there is, there is some kind of potential to it. It's not like it's, we should just kind of push the whole idea away. But how do we integrate it? How do we uh, ground it? I mean, I think you're right that, you know, so I had un what we would call unity consciousness experiences through a meditative process that were helpful. Mm. They gave me a glimpse of something. They allowed me to pull back and get some distance from my neurotic monkey hearts. They allowed me to get perspective. Um, they allowed me to have a pause and moment of restoration, for example. Um, so I agree with that. I mean, it's not like every meditative practice can't be helpful. It can be very helpful on the healing and transformation journey. But I think ultimately, if you don't come back down into your body, if you don't drop down into this vulnerable, surrendered, grounded vessel, you don't even really know what you're holding, right? So I would go work with Al Lowen with 
with some ideas, I took the 10 hour train ride from Toronto to Connecticut to see him as to what I was holding, what my issues were, what I had to focus on. And then he would get me over the breathing stool crying and vomit sounding and tantruming and grounding and all discharging and raging. And all of a sudden, I would have a completely different experience of Jeffness. Mm. Um, and that experience of Jeffness felt instantly and immediately and obviously more true to the wholeness of me than whatever I thought when I got on that train was the thing I had to focus on. So I think until we, we can go off and have all of those expansive experiences, it's fine. But I think if we don't drop down deep energetically into the body, I don't think we have any idea who we are or what this is at all. Mm. So I think this is why somatic experiencing is taking root so much. This is why bioenergetics and core energetics are wonderful go-to practices if you find the right practitioner for you, because we need to find a way to get back inside of this container to begin to understand these questions in a way that's more genuine and real. You know, to ask the question of what is this from above the body is radically different from to ask the question of what is this from deep inside of it. Mm, yeah, yeah, I hear you. You know, you've touched uh, just briefly as well in, in the introduction about uh, Urquhart Toll, and I and I did have it on my list to just kind of cover what do you think is happening here on a human level with with Urquhart and 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 why? Well, do you first of all, his name is Ulrich. Mm -hmm. He made sort of made that up, and he saw some. According to him, he saw Master Meister Eichhart with some books and thought he'd be a great book writer, and now he became Eckhart. So his name is Ulrich Tolle, first of all. That's his real name. Um, he describes in the beginning of Power of Now, a book I call The Power of Self-Avoidance, that he uh, was suicidal. Um, and then one night something happened when he was feeling particularly suicidal, and he woke up in the morning feeling enlightened. Wow. All that stuff got resolved in one night. All the stuff that's in the cells of the body, deep inside the soma, deep inside the armoring of the body and the consciousness got resolved in one night. So he caused that enlightenment and he says in the intro to his book that he sat on park benches for two years in a state of bliss, okay? Byron Katie tells a very similar story at the beginning of her main book. Um, so I read that, when I first read that story from Ulrich, I thought, wow, I want a, I want a piece of that, you know? But, and, and I played with that and I started to get like him kind of automaton-esque, like really flatlined. The more I meditated, the more I went into that flatline state. But then I'd get into relationship or have to go to work or wake up in the night worrying about money. And I was like, oh, I'm fucking human. Oh, you know, there's a whole vital system going on inside of here that isn't responding to these meditative cues, you know? And then over time, I began to believe that what happened to him was what we classically call dissociation. Um, you know, he woke up in the morning dissociated. He said he sat on park benches in a state of bliss for two years. Uh, and then he wrote a book about it. And then Oprah picked up the book. The book was dead for a while. And then Oprah somehow got it from Meg Ryan or something. And it became a whole story about enlightenment. When I hear him talk and when I hear him laugh, what sounds to me like a sadistic giggle at the plight of humanity, I feel in my body without knowing him. I mean, I know some things about him, but without getting into any of those things, what I feel inside of my body 
is a man that is completely overcome with rage, who's found a way to cap himself. That's my embodied response. Like my feet start tapping. Um, I had the same response to John DeRuiter. I just start feeling uncomfortable and like something about this doesn't feel kosher to me. Um, that's my personal response to him. Um, now that's not to say his witnessing, little witnessing the pain body techniques aren't helpful sometimes, but to say as he does somewhere in that book that that is essentially the, the nature of awakening, just paying attention to your stuff feels utterly preposterous to me. You can pay attention to your stuff and get to know your stuff, you know, like, like a, a surgeon looks at a wound before he sutures it, but you got to suture it. You got to get inside of that wound and do some work. And I don't think that he has any idea how to do that because I think he's stuck at stage one. Mm -hmm. And I think this matters because if you care about humanity, and I do, then you want us to find models and systems that allow for stage one, absolutely, but really more importantly, focus on how to bring us into stage two and ultimately into the simple thing in stage three. Yeah, though you kind of point out uh, the idea of being awakened, you still uh, believe that awakening is a thing, right? Not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think notions, I mean, there's a lot of patriarchal language that we've all developed without knowing it, you know, heightened, higher than, right? Rising above. Um, you know, these are coping strategies that have become symbols of something more than that. They're just coping strategies. The notion of realized as opposed to realizing, awakened, awakening, enlightened, enlightening. Um, it's meaningful, you know. I think that it's important to understand that there is no finished process. You're not becoming Brahmin and never coming back and floating through the ethos forevermore, doing wonderful things without having to come back into human form. This is probably a lie, but even if it isn't a lie, I've never met anybody who's anywhere close to that, um, ever. And, cer and certainly not people who are calling themselves spiritual teachers and have become celebrities, because if you look at any of their personal lives, and I know a lot about many of them, there is nothing enlightened about them. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to know how we would know either if we did come across a truly awakened uh, being. Maybe they would just melt into the, into the ether. The but question is, uh, but Ryan, the question is, why do we need to? I mean, wh what is this? What, what is it we're looking for when we look to project? You know, we see it with Trump followers. I mean, wh what is it that makes people need to believe that somebody's God? Mm. Well, I, I was just going to kind of touch on that with you, you acknowledge or agree that there is an idea of awakening. So what is that process? I mean, maybe that is kind of the fact that this thing awakening exists is a little bit like a maggot on a hook, which some people may follow, you know, what is awakening for you? I, I, so I, I would say that my greatest awakening experiences have come through what I call sacred purpose. Um, some interesting relationship between the here and the why so presence and purpose somehow intertwine so my most expanded moments happened for example in the writing process writing is a calling that lives deep within me when i can find that clarified place that brings me into the here mm. and when i'm really deeply in the here it also brings me back to my why i don't think they exist independent of each other i think that the here and the why are inextricably linked um and so I think, so for example, when people talk about awakening, they often look up, well, you did, you just did. They all, it's almost like there's an assumption that awakening happens there. Um, 
and I just don't have that experience. I'm not a bird. I mean, my experience has been the most expansive experiences have happened in the heart of my body, in the heart of my breath, when the breath becomes seamless and flowing, when I've cleared through more of the energetic blocks that I'm holding that are preventing me from feeling integrated and fluid, when I break through the fractures and the fragments and feel like I'm like I was as a child, but with, I guess, a more mature adult consciousness woven together with it so that I'm really, really here inside of myself. And then people can have all kinds of different experiences of awakening in the heart of that. Um, but this notion of awakening in the spiritual world has really been so much about something that is bifurcated consciousness. So I don't have any resonance with that. I mean, I agree with Andrew that there is a stage one of something, um, but I'm not convinced that that stage one experience is so substantial when it happens outside of the body itself. So when I asked you earlier, what is transcend? So you're talking about transcendence as something that exists independent of the body. My experience has been that this experience of something called transcendence happens more fully and deeply in the heart of my body. Mm. And I don't know if transcendence is the word. I don't like it. It's the transcendence bypass, right? I, I, I think of it more as a, um, a portal to something more unified that's happening through my localized self. I'm not really transcending the human experience. I'm just having a more expansive experience of my humanness. I just like to get your idea of, of then the idea of the conceptual separate self, the, the idea that, you know, over here, over here is Ryan, but Ryan really is a name, is a concept. I have a concept of who I think I am. I exist in a conceptual framework in language. If I do away with the language, I never label yep. that myself. Do I really exist? What yes. is on this separate, uh, the, the conceptual self being actually an illusion? So the notion that there, that the localized self is is not fundamentally true, but there's an absolute self that exists independent of that is fundamental to all dissociative patriarchal spirituality since the beginning of time. There is, you may decide that what they described and identified you as Ryan Otis is, isn't you, but there is something that is you. So for me, I found my most expansive experiences, let's just use that word for the moment, in the heart of my Jeffness, not in the heart of the Jeffness of what my mother said Jeffness was. Mm. So I, I think it's fine to distinguish ourselves from the version of us that we were identified as by other, but let's not throw, throw the whole Ryan and Jeff out with the bathwater. There's also a legitimate and authentic Jeff and Ryan that is fundamental to our selfhood and that is inextricably linked to any experience we have of a unified or more absolute self. And I don't even like the term absolute self. So uh, in the heart of my story, properly conceived, properly worked through, I found my most expansive experiences. When I was doing holotropic breathwork, going inside of my memory of my mother, going inside of my calling to write that lives encoded in me. I came in with an encoded path that is my spiritual path. It is me. I am my spiritual path. So for me to, under, I don't even understand how one would experience the true self independent of the human story. My story is my glory. My lineage is meaningful. My 
I call it sell your soul, C-E-L-L, your soul and soul shaping, repressed emotions or unactualized spiritual lessons. So all that unresolved stuff that I come in with that's generational and ancestral and personal to my soul on many levels, that is the fodder for my transformation. It's all in the heart of this Jeffness, properly and authentically conceived. Um, and that's my portal to divinity, not something independent of it. So many patriarchal spirituality has completely um, dissed the localized self because, again, they don't want to be that person because it hurts. But if you do the therapeutic work with your personhood, it doesn't hurt as much eventually. And then you start to see something those men and many women now have never seen, which is that in the heart of this is something beautiful and brilliant and unified and meaningful and horizontally connected and purpose-driven, and that is sacred purpose-oriented. For me, sacred purpose isn't just your great calling to change the world like Oprah Winfrey. It's also your unresolved emotional material. At this stage of human development, working in the heart of our pain is fundamental to our purpose. So for me, all of this is this extraordinary, colorful, flavorful, flavorful opportunity to awaken um, in the heart of the localized self. So I honor the localized self. I honor Ryan Otis, not what your mother told you you were, but what you tell me you are um, mm -hmm. and what lives inside of you in your aliveness. If you don't energize the body, you're not even going to know how much magnificence lives within you and you're not going to be able to know how you are the portal to divinity inside of the localized self by keeping it dampened by watching it witnessing it by staying far back of it by rising above it nobody ends up really knowing that they are that too i it think just you know, i think the tao Te ching and and you know jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within but how they all spirituality uh, spiritual disciplines say look within and you will find it and uh, but, but you have to look a little uh, closer at how very the word, look at the wording you got to look closer saying, at the wording you're saying uh you know the divinity is here within and it, that sounds very similar to a lot of a lot of religions and traditions they say look within i mean where do you draw the distinction between jeff and god many people would say actually awakening is awakening to the illusion of who you thought you were you know you have this idea going through life of oh this is who i am and then you realize oh this is not who i am actually that's just a character that i'm playing no Maybe no no right right absolutely right except if yeah. you look closer what i mean we'd have to look at the text together but often what they're doing is they'll tell you that you're not you're not that and i i get that but then they'll still take you farther away from your particular story to find some ver so it's like eckhart talking about the absolute self or talking about purpose how do you find purpose if you're not deep inside of the localized self where are you going to find it you're going to reach for it on a cloud you're going to become a bird and float above it and you're going to like float your way into it it doesn't work like that it's in your fucking bones man it's all in your bones so a lot of those traditions are very tricky like the yogic tradition you have to look very closely at the language and if you look closely you will see bypass in almost every single one of these man written traditions almost every one of them we could study a text together and i guarantee you we're going to find it so they do say that the real divinity lies within but what are their tools and techniques for actually getting you truly deeply inside of yourself? And how are they, how are they languaging the veracity and significance of your human story? Usually they're dissing it. Usually they're telling you it's all of it isn't you. 
So for me, it was my path has been about making distinctions between the unhealthy ego and the healthy ego, not just going the ego is bad. My, my path has been about understanding that some of my personal identifications are absolutely accurate. I had visions of encoded path in my bones. I knew I would work with Eddie Greenspan at the, at the age of 14, and I worked with Eddie Greenspan. I saw things that were inside of me that were part of my path, all in the story, the story that is my glory. So for me, it was like, what's the false identification? Mommy's saying I'm always bad. Well, that's not true. Fine. So you do the therapeutic work to distinguish the shame body from the true self, but the true self still lives inside of this amazing story, the lineage, the ancestral decay, the generational material that you're here to take to the next level. As we humans cross the bridge from survivalism to authenticity, if we keep seeing the most expansive awakened thing as something independent of Ryan Otis's story, we're dead. There's nothing, there's no life to be had in a dead story. Mm. You may as well kill yourself for God's sakes. For me, I had to find it inside of this story. And that's how I honor my ancestors. That how, that's how I honor my mother and my father who did their best with whatever limitations they had. My grandparents who kept feeding me and nourishing me to help me away from this negative family environment. I honor them by trying to take this journey to the next level in the heart of my story. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. You kind of do away with purpose to say there is no separate self and separate. Where are you going to find it? Where are you going to find it? Right. You're going to, you're going it to, it's not a concept. Purpose is a feeling. Purpose is an embodied knowing. Purpose mm -hmm. is something that courses through your veins. Um, purpose is probably something that comes in on a soul level. It certainly feels like it did for me. So I had to find everything in my story. I had to clean up my story in order to find my glory. You, you did mention this idea of kind of a path. And, and it's in, in, in that way, then, do you believe there's fate? Do you believe there's an unfolding uh, path that, that is, is fate a part of this? And if so, what is it that designs that path? I don't know what designs the path. Um, but I do feel as though that I carry encoded path. That has always been my experience. And I have been cynical about that forever. And I just kept getting the same information over and over again, that there's something more than an arbitrary tourist journey happening within me. You know, my glimpses were so real and so tangible. My synchronicities were so odd and strange. I mean, I remember at 22 years old, I was uh, in Collingwood, Ontario, going skiing. And I, I had the thought I'm going to bump into Eddie Greenspan, who was absolutely not a skier. He was a Jewish trial lawyer who never went near a ski hill in his entire life. And I walked in the mall and there was Eddie Greenspan on a telephone. I had so many experiences, not only in the love experience, but in day-to-day -day life that indicated to me that there was a path encoded in me. So when I decided after articling with Eddie and getting ready and primed to become a prominent trial lawyer to walk away, I knew that I was alluding to something that was encoded. I didn't fully understand it. I still don't fully understand it, but it was absolutely and utterly true. I believe every, and it can't certainly just be me. You know, I feel like everybody comes in in this misidentified world with sacred purpose. They just keep looking for their identifications outside of their human story. And I just decided to look for it inside of it. You know, uh, from the Hindu perspective, um, I obviously live in Bali, there's many Hindus there. 
But, you know, their belief is generally that you are Atman, you are Brahman uh, as the Atman, but they're not pushing away their humanity. They're they're bringing up their families. They're very embodied uh, people. They love their uh, sacred ceremonies and things like that. They're not trying to be enlightened. Uh, They're not kind of, uh, there is no hierarchy. I'm more enlightened than you. It is the recognition that all beings are divine manifestations and all beings are equal, regardless of gender, social status, or hierarchy. Um, uh, all is equal because all is all is God in form, playing all of the characters and all of the roles. And to them, the roles and characters, from my experience, are, are of importance. How does that differ from you know where where you stand with it? It seems very similar. I felt a lot of resonance in Bali with people of Bali, actually, for all kinds of different, I mean, in some ways I did. I mean, I think we'd have to look closer at the texts. I think certainly in India, the way that, I mean, the problem with going too far with that view is it starts to become too generic to all one unity consciousness oriented, and we're no longer taking seriously the plight of the individual. So for me, Western consciousness is the bridge. This is how I think of it, that there's this this bridge between you know the quest for essence or unity consciousness fundamental to eastern many eastern traditions and the quest for healthy self concept you know a sturdy sense of self and emotional work through fundamental to western psychology where the quest for uh, where the oceans of essence meet the individual droplet of meaning i wrote in grounded spirituality to me that's the work and for me a lot of those models go too far towards unity and that's why they're comfortable treating women like garbage. Um, and some of the Western traditions go too far in the direction of pragmatism um, and end up so buried in the localized that they can't realize there is a more unified field. So I feel like my work is to try to bridge those two things, but in a way that never loses sight of the value of the individual droplet of meaning. And that's not an easy job. It really isn't. No, I've, I've got more death threats uh, in my email folder than probably anyone writing in the field. I mean, I've been writing against this for so long and I've been hated for so long. And now they're all writing against the bypass because it's trendy and all the rest of it. But, but, you know, I've got the hate emails to show that I've been doing this for a long time. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm basically writing against patriarchal spirituality, which is most of what we've been calling spirituality since the beginning of whenever the beginning of it was. And it, it, it's an uncomfortable thing. I, part of me just wanted to be the soul shaper guy. You know, I was very sweet and comfortable being just, you know, focusing on path and purpose and not challenging systems. But, you know, I got involved in political things. I got involved in this kind of activism because that part of me is very real. And because I think that if you care about humanity, you want us to be, you know, there's this movie, I think it's called 2012 with John Cusack or something, you know, the big poster image for it. This poster image with all the monks on the top of the mountain, like in meditative repose, as though they have found everything and everything in the world is an illusion. And you see the water coming over the mountains to kill them. And, you know, for me, it's that vision of enlightenment has to go now, certainly with the species in trouble with climate change and all the rest of it. If we don't get here, like really here, if we don't get into localized self, if we don't find path and purpose, if we don't get horizontal in terms of seeing environment, seeing other humans and keep staying vertical, we're doomed. So for me, this is this work is not just, I'm not just having fun with this. I think this is absolutely a necessity that we empower, deepen, and integrate the individual in a more inclusive consciousness so that we can actually fix the species. 
Would you agree though that even on the horizontal level, the vertical dimension is kind of of some importance? What we see is people that have had these awakening experience, like I said, tend to have them better abilities to have better relationships to once they healed entheogenically certainly is the case when you once they've cured their own addictions i don't know who you, i don't know who you know uh i, I know a lot of, <laughs> tons of them that don't have good anything relationships I can only talk from my own experience really you know i can't look to the other and, and from what i right. in entheogenic uh, circles but you know for me when i was drinking uh, i was terrible in my relationships you know i was a complete egomaniac and, and now with the use of mushrooms, I've come to a point where I can really empathize with my partner and with my family and with my son. Nice. And I feel like I'm, I'm making better relationships. And I really required that vertical dimension because I was a complete atheist all my life. I knew, knew nothing of spirituality until about three or four years ago. And then it, this thing hit me and it was all of a sudden, whoa, this was an awakening and my life became a better order. And, and for me, I saw that on the nice. individual level, you can fix the world that way too. Beautiful. So, so I guess my question is, why do we have to talk about it as vertical? What, what's vertical about it? What you just described for me is as a result of these experiences, you feel more authentic, more integrated, more embodied, more relational and more depthful. So what happens if we start talking about what you ha experienced as something, but not vertical, but actually um, depthful or truthful? Mm or work through um what what purpose does it serve is it just some little refuge and reprieve that our consciousness gets when we get to think of it as being something rising above something because nothing you said to me there sounded like you were floating above the human experience it sounds like now you're more deeply inside of the human experience so it's not vertical at all you actually woke down you know samuel bonder's work you actually went down inside of this container and found a way as a result of these experiences to take this expansive or insightful moments and weave them into your way of being in the real world. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I have no, I have no basis to challenge any of that. Um, I just don't think there's anything vertical about it. I think, you know, it, it, I dare say that probably a lot of these, these emails that you're getting are really just misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're not, they're not understanding what I'm talking about. <laughs> because, yeah. because it's, um, and this is kind of one of the questions I had written down as well is, you know, what you say offends people um, in, in certain people. It, well, it, it, it triggers their defenses and resistance. Yeah. And, 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 and what is it in them? In, Cause this, it doesn't just, we, we become attached to these beliefs and ideas as a kind of way out of our suffering and as of our, our way out of, of uh, dealing with our problems, like you say. And it's like when somebody challenges that, when we've had success with it and then somebody challenges it. Success. Yeah, some, some success, whatever it is, uh, where you find maybe some peace of mind or, some, or at least you're experiencing peace, whether it be real or not, whether it's a placebo or not you're still kind of experiencing this peace when somebody challenges it and offends yeah. it. Yeah. Like you're going to get that visceral reaction. And is, is that what it's you like, think? it like it's, it's no, you know, for me, Trump and Tolley are the same thing. It's all the same thing. So when you confront a Tollian or if I confront a Trumpian and they get angry and resistant or Buddhists, you know, but there's nothing angrier than an angry Buddhist, right? I got more hate letters and death threats from Buddhists than anybody. You know, basically what you're saying is that I'm calling you back to your unresolved trauma. 
I'm calling you back inside of your broken heart. I'm calling you back there not to hurt you. I'm calling you back there because if you don't clear that debris, you're not actually truly present. You have some detached version of presence, you know, but detachment is a tool, it's not a life. They don't like that line. I love that line. They don't like that line because I'm saying to them, you have to stop resisting. Um, you found a, a model or a technique, a coping strategy, but you're confusing that with resolution. Um, and for people who are the most offended, those are the ones who get the most enraged, right? Um, so the 20 hour a day meditators are the ones who more likely will write me a death threat letter than the people who just meditate for an hour a day because they really need that 20 hours in order to find an experience of equanimity in the heart of all that unresolved trauma. Um, so that's what's happening. I know that's what's happening. Doesn't mean it isn't a little scary sometimes, but I, you know, I know that's what's happening. Um, it's, it's resistance um, because they're not even really reading me, right? They're not reading grounded. They're not, they're seeing a quote and then they're coming after me from the quote. They don't want to read the book because they don't want to go on Michael's journey. So Michael in the book who I dialogued with, the symbolic character, he was able to take the bait just take the bait of this process and explore it with me. And I learned from him too. Mm -hmm. These are people who are absolutely resistant to taking any kind of stages in the direction of dropping back down into their unresolved material. They have found refuge in the idea that there's an absolute self and they found it. So what can I do? There's nothing I can do about that. Just, just kind of on, on that, that thought, if there is, um, if, you, if what you're saying is that, these people really haven't found the absolute self. They're just avoiding their trauma. Then does that mean that we can never overcome our trauma? If there's nobody that's ever um, found the, the absolute self, then that means there's nobody ever overcome their trauma in a way, right? Can trauma uh, no, I, I think my suspicion is that the more work you do to reintegrate within the body and clear the emotional debris and learn the lessons at the heart of that material, if there are lessons to be learned, that you're probably completely uninterested in any of these notions of absolute self. <laughs> it starts to seem like some silly dissociative drug trip that a bunch of meditators are on in order to avoid doing the work. Um, I don't know, the most, I would say the most clarified experiences I've, I've had, I'm not having this this moment, but at other times when I've had that experience of feeling beautifully grounded, beautifully unified, beautifully connected to many threads of reality, um, I'm feeling so wonderful to be human and alive that the last thing I'm thinking about is some objective notion of absolute selfhood. It just seems utterly preposterous and self-avoidant to me. In that feeling that you just described there for yourself, do you feel that there is, do you think that there is an ability to kind of maintain that level, right? To have some consistency with that level of, of being? that level of sort of feeling integrated humanist thing. Yeah, and, and, I mean, I think, well, that's my work and that's all of our work. And I think that's a sociological construct too. I mean, so to go and have those experiences and then to come back into a survivalist vibration culture, 
uh, distracted culture, unconscionable capitalism, the ways we're pulled on energetically, all those things, it's very hard to stay in those places. I do my best to stay in a place that's beautifully woven with respect to the localized and the unified. But I don't think at this stage of human development, that's a sustainable experience in the real world. I think that's why we do activism to bring the world to a place that's more aligned with supporting that experience. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I'm a patient guy. Growers are inchworms. I'm an inchworm. I'm patient. I'm patient individually, and I'm very patient and realistic about collective transformation. I don't believe in big shifts. I don't believe in that. I, I think really we move like little turtles in the direction of some sustainable transformation. So I'm fine with that. I'm fine with working like a beast, try to bring my little piece through in the heart of this collective tapestry. Um, and I think we have to be very realistic about how far we have yet to come. So when people talk about awakened and enlightened, I feel like that what they're doing is they're inviting us away from continuing to do the work that we all need to do, including them, to actually bring us somewhere that is more awakening than the place that we're at right now. Mm. Yeah. And then I just, I also wanted just to ask you about your idea then of what do you think uh, death is? Death, um, what, what do you think that is? Do you think it's the end of, of Jeff or is, is it an afterlife or is it a reincarnation or do you have any sentiments or intimations on what, what it may be? So I could go and put on my guru outfit and give you a very guru-esque answer and then have millions of followers, but instead I'll stay in my Jeffness and I'll tell you that today I don't know. Um, uh, lately it just feels like death to me, but very often during my journey, I have had glimpses of a soul's journey that's threading forward, included my encoded path within me, that really I can't reconcile with notions of that's the end of Jeff. It's, it's the end of some version of Jeff, but on a soul level, I'm mostly usually inclined to think that we really do go forward in some form or another, but not in the middle of this week with Donald Trump. Uh, I can acknowledge I'm feeling significantly cynical about the human experience. It sounds like a reincarnation, close enough. Um, yeah, okay. What about I'll go, love? I'll go with that. Huh? What about love, Jeff? How would you describe love? I'm completely opposed to love, Ryan. I think it's a completely unhealthy state of being. Um, um, uh, what's the question about love? Uh, what was your definition of it? What do you think it is? I mean, I think, pro you know, when I was doing my, my uh, graduate work at Saybrook on my Uncommon Bond experience, I felt inclined to believe that love was the truest portal to divinity, to um, a co-creative consciousness, to a whole other portal of possibility that, you know, I think this is part of why I was led away from this individual spiritual path because I found my most, ex many of my most expansive experiences happened relationally in the relational horizontal field. They didn't happen vertically in my isolation. I was very good at that, but it, it was nothing compared to the terror that came out relationally and nothing compared to the expansiveness that came up relation, relationally. So I think it is fundamental to our sacred purpose to, in, to, to feel love and to engage in profoundly powerful, loving relationships. And I'm inclined to think that, and I, ha I, I can't fully... Um, language. I can't fully articulate this yet, I think, but I'm inclined to think that that we really are at the individual stage of consciousness where it's most 
all that most of us can do to figure out what the hell's wrong with us, what lives inside of us, what is the path and purpose that we're here to walk. Um, but I think the next stage, once we get a little better at that, is to then to begin to explore consciousness in the relational field. And I have a feeling when that happens, a whole new galaxy is going to open up for us. And that just leads uh, very nicely, actually, to my last question of today. Um, and that is about uh, different realms. Do you believe that there are different realms, different vibrations, frequencies of being? Or, you know, when people ingest things like DMT or LSD, they can talk a lot about traveling to different realms and meeting different entities and beings and things like that. Do you believe that uh, there are these different realms? And I don't particularly care um, because I think for me at this stage of human development, the work is inside of the individual and then inside of the relational field. I have no doubt that once we've done enough work to craft this weave in a truly healthy unarmored, undefended, healed, vital, aligned, purposeful way, we will have glimpses into all kinds of realms of possibility that we only barely ever detect in this consciousness. I don't know what they are, but I believe all of that is possible. But again, I feel like we need to focus on this container, get to work inside of this container, and then we'll have clearer glimpses of other realms of possibility. And I'm concerned that when we jump to those in an avoidant bypassy way, which we often do, that we then never come back down and take seriously the work we need to do to craft a sustainable vessel that can actually access other realms, land there, stay there, explore there, and then take humanity to the next stage. If there was somebody opening their notebook now, ready to send you some hate mail, um, is there anything you would you would like to just conclude with? Anything you would like to summarize with and uh, possibly say, don't send that email? <laughs> I would just say read Grounded Spirituality from start to finish and then decide if you really need to write me a hate letter. You know, one of the, one of the when, I, when I came into this book, I was, I had more of an edge you know, around this, because I feel like I'm, you know, there's an aggression to this whole journey with this message and to the responses that I'm getting from it sometimes. But I wrote the book differently on purpose. I had an editor, we talked it through, and I came in kind of like Uncle Jeff. And it actually helped me to access my languaging in a much more amenable and accessible way, I think, um, to be in conversation with Michael as an author, I took that to heart. I felt him. I felt like I knew him. He looked a little like you, except he had glasses. Um, and so I would just ask them to actually read the book before they write the letter. And then if they want to write the letter, write the letter. Uh, and I'm not saying that to sell a book. I just want them to give me, I'm tired of reading letters that aren't informed as to what I'm talking about, that are making assumptions about what I'm talking about. Read what I'm saying and then decide if you really hate me all that much. Yeah, I think that was the key reason you did send me a copy of the book. And yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to check before you yeah. talk to anybody that they've actually looked at your work. I think that's... That. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Where can people find more about you if they want to go online? You have a website there or... Yeah, Wayne website is jeffbrown.co now. I've got download courses. I've got a hot abandonment wound course right now that's off the charts. Um, my books are all there. My new book, Articulations, is up on Amazon. Bookstores have it or will have it if you ask them to bring them into the bookstore. Um, that's a very sweet book of my quotes, my fourth book of quotes. I have an online school, soulshapinginstitute.com. Um, 
I have a film, karmageddonthemovie.com, that can be downloaded that you, uh, you need to wear a tinfoil hat, but if you do, <laughs> you'll be okay and you'll and never forget it. Have you seen Carmageddon, Ryan? No, but I will watch it just after I, I have a feeling you maybe should watch this crazy <laughs> film. It's really something. Um, and I'm developing a grounded spirituality teaching model. Um, and my podcast will both launch probably at the beginning of January. So that'll be the next step. But I'm, I'm all over Facebook and Instagram and I'll share links as it, as it arises. Perfect. And I, I'll put those links down there in the, in the comments. Thank Jeff, you. Um, you know, I want to thank you for your authenticity, for your honesty, for your brave uh, courage to actually come out and say a lot of the things that you say. I may not agree with everything that's written in your book. I agree with a lot of it. Um, but I, I do uh, admire your courage to come out and say it. And I think that you serve a, an important purpose in bringing some of our communities back down to, to the humanity. And I think it's a great thing that you're doing. It's nice to come back to earth, isn't it? <laughs> now we can actually get some work done. Yeah. All Thanks, right. Buddy. Thank Thanks you very much. Take okay. care, my friend. Yeah, you too. You. Bye. Bye.